You know, when you read a book, especially one like the Bible, with such regularity over the course of your life, you end up developing relationships with particular stories. Right? Maybe there are stories that, that captivated your imagination as a child, right? like David and Goliath, Jonah and the whale, Jesus walking on water. Maybe there are characters you've just always loved or others that you didn't like so much. Or maybe there are stories that answered important questions in your life or other stories that caused you to question everything. And then friends, if you're lucky, maybe, maybe there are even some stories that inspired you, moved you, changed you even. It's the story, but it's also you, and it's everything you were going through in life when you read it for the first time or the, the hundredth time. It's hard to explain what a story can mean to you because it's just words, and, and yet it's so much more than that too. This morning's story is one that has had a, a deep impact on me, one that's changed me. It's a simple story, but, but even from a young age, it inspired me. It, it challenged me to, to seek out a type of connection with God that I didn't even know existed. So friends, this morning, we are going to read 1 Samuel chapter 3. I want, I want us to search these words for ourselves in the story and for, for meaning. But before we do that, a little recap. Like I said last week, I can't give you a skip the recap button, so, so you're in this with me. Last week, we were introduced to Hannah. Hannah had been waiting for years to have kids in the waiting, and the longing had been beating her up. Finally, in a desperate and tearful prayer, Hannah promises God that if she was to finally have a son, she would give him back to the Lord's service forever. Eli, the head priest in Shiloh, was present while Hannah was praying, and after sticking his foot in his mouth, if you remember, he sent her off with a blessing and asked God to give her what she had asked for. Turns out Hannah does become pregnant. She gives birth to a son, as you just heard with our kids, names him Samuel, which means I asked the Lord for him. And then when the boy was still young, she brought him back to Eli, the priest, and Samuel was to remain with him, set aside from birth for the service of the Lord. And that's where we pick back up. This is 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now the boy, Samuel, ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. I know it's a little early into the story to be stepping out, but, but we just read, in those days, the word of the Lord was rare, which I think is just odd enough, and, and just it occurs enough times in this chapter and throughout the entire Bible to just stop for a second and take a peek at it. As we could spend all morning on this, the and the Bible uses this phrase in so many different ways, uh, Scripture 
is referred to as the word of God. Jesus is referred to as the word of God. Several people, especially prophets, are said to to receive the word of God, to proclaim the word of God. On Christmas Eve, we almost always read a part of the prologue to John's gospel that, that reads, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. It was with God in the beginning, and so, What is this word? What does it mean that in those days the word of the Lord was rare? For today, I just want you to think of the word, the word of God, the word of the Lord as as a revelation of God, an encounter or an experience with God. It's, It's a revealing of God's character. God's desire, as we say in church circles sometimes, it's a revealing of God's will. The Bible's the word of God in the sense that it reveals to us the character of God. Jesus is the word of God in the sense that he embodies and reveals to us the way of God. In Jesus, we come to, to know God, experience God, truly encounter God and, and so we'll move on from this tangent. But when we read that in, in those days, the word of God was rare, it's saying that in those days, people didn't know God. They didn't recognize God's voice or character or will. The people didn't know God in the undertone of this book is that they're in need of a leader who does. We go back to the reading. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, he was laying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. And again, we'll step outside the story for a second because I think we'll get at it better if you can picture this scene. Samuel, the boy, is laying down in the house of God, the, the tent that stores all of Israel's communal and, and religious treasures. A couple years ago, we read about all these artifacts in Genesis 25. So picture with me, Samuel's laying down in an ornate tent. There's silk gemstones, gold everywhere. The lamp of the Lord's presence hasn't gone out, and so the whole thing is, is flickering by candlelight. And then we read that Samuel is curled up next to the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And outside of watching Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, do we remember anything about this Ark? <laughs> not, it's okay, because we're actually going to spend most of next week talking about the Ark of the Covenant. It's said to contain three sacred and important artifacts from Israel's history and time in the wilderness, and this box or chest, the Ark of the Covenant, is said to be the carrier of God's presence. And so surrounded by all this remarkable stuff, Samuel was trying to get a little shut-eye. And then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am. 
you called me? But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So we went back and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called. And again, Eli said, my son, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not, net, did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. And then a third time, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called? Is then that Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went back down to the place he was at. The Lord came and stood there calling as at the other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Like I said, it's, it's a pretty simple story. And yet it's, it's the turning book, or a turning point of this entire book. The classic reading and preaching of this story, it focuses on language of calling. This is Samuel's call narrative. God calls out to Samuel four times, and so we tell this story as the moment that Samuel felt called to ministry. The moment that he... He found his life's purpose. In turn, then, the story, it often begs a question of the reader, of you, of me. What are we called to? Right? If we found our calling, are we living out our life's purpose? I'll tell you, there's few things people like to ask pastors as much as, when did you receive the call? Right? When did you know that you were supposed to be a pastor? In fact, when a search committee receives pastoral candidate profiles, the very first essay that all pastors are supposed to write about is your sense of calling to ordain ministry. It's a thing, right? And now we use this language in much wider categories as well. We often use it to talk about caring professions, hard professions, historically underpaid professions, right? You must really feel called to do what you do, <laughs> right? Implying that you'd be out of your mind to do that thing if God hadn't twisted your arm. Frederick Buchner is credited with a, a classic definition of calling, and I wonder if any of you have heard this excerpt from his book, uh, Wishful Thinking. He says, the kind of work God usually calls you to is the kind of work, A, that you need most to do, and B, that the world most needs to have done. And he goes on with maybe this more famous line, the place God calls you to is the place where your deepest gladness and the world's deepest hunger meets. I've always loved that. It's so practical and, and inspiring to help you find your thing. It's balanced, 
right? It doesn't let the whole thing be about the hunger and the needs of the world, but it also doesn't let you make the whole thing about you. It's so good. The place that God calls you is the place where your deepest gladness in the world's deepest hunger meets. I love this. I think it's vital that our faith compels us to do good in the world and that we seek our life's purpose. The problem is, I don't think that's what this story's talking about, like at all. For me, this story triggers something else. For me, this story has never been about finding the right job or finding one's life's purpose or or locating the intersection of, of A and B. For me, this story has always been about learning to recognize God's voice, God's character, God's word. And not in some ritualistic, overly religious way, like in a real way. Like as if I could actually tap into God. Even as a kid, I often felt little tugs, pulls towards God. My, my childhood is littered in moments when I genuinely felt like God was trying to get my attention, trying to say something to me, and it's hard to describe. I, I, I feel like I regularly had moments when, when I felt compelled to go places and then became acutely aware that I was right where I was supposed to be. Or moments I felt compelled to say things to people and then found myself blown away by, by the encounters that ensued. Or experiences of people who said they felt compelled to say something to me and then I felt empowered, like in an inner sort of way. And church was a part of it, but it was something bigger than church. I felt drawn to it, compelled by it, like kids jumping through a wardrobe into Narnia, right? It felt so real and yet so unreal all at the same time. There's a longing in me to know God better and, and to get to feel connected to that more regularly. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you've always had a little spiritual spark in you, an awareness of something out there, a, just a, a sensitivity to God, and you can't help but want to refine that gift, want to develop that thing, right? More regularly feel tapped into the source. That's amazing. There's nothing, nothing better. Or maybe for you, all this language sounds weird and childish and superstitious and a little foo-foo. Maybe you used to think I was a normal dude, and now you think I watch Harry Potter too much with my kids, which is absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. Of course. Because it, it is childish, or at least childlike. It is irrational and mystical. I'd say wonderfully foo-foo. Of course. Of course it sounds strange. It didn't make any sense to Samuel either, and until it did, and then it changed some things for him. All I can say is that this story uh, had a massive impact on me as a kid. 
and at different points throughout my life. From time to time, I've found myself in this story. I've found myself in Samuel, a boy who had these feelings, premonitions, sensitivities to God, and yet didn't know what to do with it, where to, where to go, how to respond. I love that our story just straight up tells us that Samuel didn't even know God, right? The word of God hadn't even been revealed to him yet. And, and yet, somehow, Samuel learns how to listen, learns how to tap into God and, and continues to get better. The idea of this story, well, it sparked in me a hopeful imagination that there's a whole new level to this spiritual life that I hadn't been exposed to yet. And, and it sent me on a quest to, to learn how to listen, to, to, to learn how to recognize God's voice. A sense of calling and purpose and direction is so helpful. And yet, at, at least for me, I can't think of, of any more important task than, than learning how to discern what thoughts and desires and, and actions are of me and my ego and what is of God. Because when it's all in alignment, right, when it all sinks up and we're tapped into the source, life feels effortless. It becomes covered in grace and joy and love. Samuel didn't have to worry about what his next job title was going to be or whose health care he was covered under. Right? Samuel developed an intimate connection with God. And then, and then as we'll read, kings, kings kind of find him. The, the practice of spiritual discernment, it isn't easy. And it can take time to develop and refine. Uh, but the fun part is that everyone, everyone, everyone can do it. I think over time, anyone can learn how to quiet themselves and the many competing voices of the world around them. It takes introspection, awareness, self-honesty, spirit. It takes practice with prayer and meditation and silence. Additionally, I think over time, anyone can better know God. As we already said, we can, we can come to know God through the Bible, through the life of Jesus. My reform roots right, would remind me that we, we actually experience God in the created world, in nature, in each other. We can come to know the, the type of places God's often found. The, the type of things that God's often up to and the ways in which God operates. And it's in the quieting of noise and the, the revelation of God we begin hearing things. And so if you've had spiritual inclinations, divine curiosity throughout your life, try incorporating into your prayer life the words, here I am, I'm listening. If you haven't really felt those things or thought those thoughts, but would like to, you could start with an easy mantra, like, here I am, I'm listening. 
If you've been at this for decades and are deeply rooted in the spirit, I'd still encourage you to take on a posture of here I am, I'm still listening. It's beyond an advanced player's mode as we sometimes say. Uh, Spiritual discernment can feel more like a cheat code, right? That allows you to play the game like it was meant to be played. And so don't give up. Don't give up seeking out your calling or purpose or your way of giving back to the world. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, the greater task is to learn to recognize the voice of God. So God calls out to Samuel four times. And he finally clues in that it's God. Samuel says, speak for your servant is listening. And then God begins to speak to him. And get this, God doesn't tell him anything about what he's going to become, what his job title's going to be. He doesn't tell him anything about his future or purpose. God tells Samuel that Eli's time is up. And not just Eli, Eli's whole family's time is up. It turns out that Eli's two sons, who are also priests, have been stealing misrepresenting and abusing their sacred position to exploit people. Eli didn't do anything like that, but he knew about it. He knew what his kids were up to, and and he did nothing to stop it. Essentially, God tells Samuel, it's time to shake up the spiritual leadership of this people. And then the chapter finishes with these words. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground in all of Israel. From Dan to Beersheba, everyone recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear in Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And as I always conclude, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.